rehearsal of some stuff we know, and hopefully some of it will be new and stretch us. And then next week, um, Tim's going to look at the resurrection. Um, so we're in Matthew 27, verses 45 to 56, and that's page 945 in your church Bibles. Um, and just as you'll find that, guys, um, I wanted to say, if you really want to get the cross, read Hebrews, get yourself a commentary on Hebrews, and just read through Hebrews. It unpacks the theology of the cross in a way that is extraordinary, and far better than anything I'm going to say this evening. So, um, but it'll be good too, don't worry. <laughs> Great, okay, Matthew 27, verses 45 to 56. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land, about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemasterbachfam, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Let's pray, shall we? And Father, we thank you that in Christ, you gave everything for us. And as we just reflect upon the cross again, would you take us deeper into the mystery of faith? Would you take these words of mine and open the scriptures to us in such a unique way, by the power of your Holy Spirit and for your glory? Amen. Now, um, in the mid kind of 20th century, um, an extraordinary theologian um, burst onto the scenes called Jürgen Moltmann. And he wrote this book called The Crucified God. It's an incredible, incredible book. And in it, he just puts the cross right at the center of all theology where it should be. And he argues that the cross is an incredibly practical thing that we need to get hold of and understand at its deepest, most complex levels if we're going to know what it means to be a Christian and to walk it well for God and to explain our faith and realities to the world around us. But Moltmann, before he was a theologian, was a Jew in Germany. And he found himself in the concentration camps under the Nazis. And so he begins his book by just saying this. Shattered and broken, the survivors of my generation were then returning from camps and hospitals to the lecture room. A theology which did not speak of God in the sight of the one who was abandoned and crucified would have had 
nothing to say to us then. Let's just take a moment to consider those words. Because actually the cross, as we classically know it, is the moment of our vindication, is the moment where Jesus made a perfect way to the Father, but it's also the moment of absolute suffering, where our God said to us, it's okay, in all the pain and all the trauma of life, I'm with you, and I understand it. So that's what we're going to look at this evening. So what did the cross do at its most basic level? Well, we all know that um, Genesis 1 and 2 were created for divine relationship. And then Genesis 3, the fall comes in. And there's a separation between humankind, us, and this is the worst visual aid ever. So here we go. I was so not get away with this at HGV, but anyway, <laughs> between us and, oh, hang on, it's up there, and God, there we go, terrible visual aid, but it works. <laughs> so, boom, the fall comes in. Suddenly, there's this huge, huge gap, isn't there? But of course, as we were talking about with this sort of series on the covenant before Christmas, God didn't just leave us in the muck and the mire separated from him. So the whole of the Old Testament tells us about the sacrificial system, the system that God initially put in place for his people, the Israelites, to try and bridge this gap between us, humankind, and him, God. But it didn't fully work. Because what ha used to happen was that day after day, and week after week, and year after year, the Israelites would come to the Lord and they would offer their sacrifices of goats and sheep and bushels of wheat and things. And the gap would be bridged for a little while. And then they'd be right back there. And then once a year, the high priest would come into the Holy of Holies, into the temple, the place where God's presence dwelt. And he would offer this huge sacrifice on behalf of the people. And again, it would bridge the gap for a little bit then it wouldn't anymore. What the whole of the Old Testament is crying out for is a perfect sacrifice made once and for all that can eternally bridge the gap between us, humankind, and God. And so that comes in the person of Jesus. And the writer to the Hebrews unpacks it so well, Hebrews chapter 7, just says this about the Old Testament law. If perfection could have been obtained through the Levitical priesthood, the Old Testament sacrificial system, and indeed the law given to the people who established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come? Because it didn't work. It couldn't bridge the gap. And so in the person of Jesus, that permanent way came. And it's because of the mystery of faith that actually, in Jesus, it is God, God Almighty, giving of himself in us, frail humanity. And the early um, church fathers who sort of wrote in the second and fourth century, 
were always wrestling with this. And they came up with a few phrases. A chap called Irenaeus just says, what has not been assumed cannot be saved. What has not been assumed cannot be saved. And so Christ, Jesus, had to become this flesh and blood, you know, hair and toenails, in order to save all that we are. He had to assume all that we are. But equally, as another guy, Athanasius goes on. If he was not God, he would not have had the power to save. He had to be God Almighty in order to bridge this gap. And that's what happened on the cross. A perfect sacrifice. God giving of himself in us. And so Hebrews goes on in chapter 7 to say, such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy and blameless and pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer the sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered him self and that's where Matthew 27 50 to 51 is so key and when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice he gave up his spirit and at that moment the curtain of the temple was torn into from top to bottom and so what happened was that the whole Old Testament system where the presence of God was veiled and where only the high priest could come once a year. It's blown open. And it's God in Christ saying, you're welcome in. My dwelling is now with you, my people. I love you. A perfect, perfect sacrifice. So that's what the cross did. But what was the cross at the deepest level? Karl Barth, who's um, another German theologian, just says that the cross was God's eternal yes in Christ to us. God's eternal yes to us, ready to give absolutely everything, ready to pour out himself because he loves us so much. But it's God for us in the most unlikely way, isn't it? So Moltmann goes on to say, it is the suffering of God in Christ which qualifies Christian faith as faith and as something different from the projection of man's desires. Something different from the projection of our desires. Because the cross is appalling. If God had just sort of come up to me and said, right, find a way to bridge the gap between you and me, I don't think I would have come up with the cross. But the cross is utterly subversive. And in being so, it utterly vindicates us. It's a place of freedom and restoration. But however hard it is to hear, we do, during Easter, have to process the shame and the scorn of the cross that God went through for our salvation, for our healing. So Hebrews 12 just rightly says, so rightly, for the joy set before him, he, Jesus, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. 
because the cross was marked by abandonment and embarrassment and suffering. For Jesus, it was culturally and personally embarrassing, abandoning. So when Paul's um, unpacking the cross in 1 Corinthians 1.23, he just says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. And that tells us so much about what the cross was. So for the Gentiles, the Greeks, the Romans, the everyday people of Jesus' world, it was utter foolishness to worship a crucified God. Crucifixion was the most appalling, painful, embarrassing thing reserved for the worst of criminals and for slaves. And we put a loincloth over it and that wasn't what was happening. Jesus was strung up there, stark naked, broken for us. And he was abandoned by his people. He was Jewish. And it was his people who put him up there. And the cross was a stumbling block for Jews. Because actually when you go back to the Old Testament books of law, when you go back to Deuteronomy, it just says this, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. And so for us, Jesus was hung on a pole. And Paul picks it up in Galatians. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. And at a really practical level, his friends abandoned him. Peter disowned him. Disciples are nowhere to be seen. Only the women stayed a course. <laughs> Sorry, had to say that. <laughs> It's good to make this a bit lighter. It was getting quite intense, wasn't it? So, um, <laughs> verse 55, many women were there, admittedly watching from a distance, but anyway. <laughs> so Jesus is there, and he's culturally and personally abandoned. But equally, he's spiritually abandoned. Verse 46, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? She, the father, turns his face away. And what happened on the cross was not that the Trinity was broken or that God was broken, but it was that God suffered in his innermost being. And so the father suffered as a father, losing his son for a moment, all to be redeemed. And the son suffers as a son, as the father turns his face away, and the spirit suffers as a friend, a broken-hearted friend. All of the Trinity are engaged in the suffering and the redemption that we find in the cross. Because a broken world needed a really subversive act to be a great victory that results in our healing. So Paul continues, 2 Corinthians 5. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. All the weight of it, all the weight of everything we've ever done wrong, all the weight of everything that's ever gone wrong in this world, all the weight of the brokenness of creation itself in him, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
um, John Vanier, who's an amazing uh, Catholic leader and theologian, just draws it out like this. Jesus enters fully, freely into the agony of his passion. From the moment of the Garden of Gethsemane, the pain of all creation comes to the surface in the consciousness of Jesus. He bore it all so that the gap would be closed. And in so doing, in being forsaken, in bearing the weight of everything that is negative in our world upon him, he brings our healing. And so he achieves for us what we know that we've got right now in him, salvation, future hope, the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, the call of the church to be his body, the dignity of inclusion that we get to get involved in this mystery of faith in the kingdom of God, that we're adopted in, that we're called sons and daughters, that the barrier has been broken and we can sit here we can go home and sit on our sofa, we can walk around Sainsbury's and we can just have a chat with our God. That's what the cross did. It achieved what we have now. But it also achieved what is to come. That we can be absolutely, absolutely certain of our destiny. That we are and will be resurrected in him. The resurrected king is resurrecting us. And the new creation, the day where he will come like a flash of light, is certain and sure. And if we know him by name, we're caught up in that. So that Revelation can declare to us, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. That's what the cross achieved. He gave it all for us so that we can step into those realities. So what does that mean really practically? 8th of April, 2018, Parsons Green. Well, Maltman goes on to say that actually the cross is not and cannot be loved, yet only the crucified Christ can bring the freedom which changes the world because it is no longer afraid of death. That's what we need to know about the cross, that it brings our freedom so that we no longer need to be afraid of death and death in all its forms. Those small deaths that we suffer when someone says a harsh word to us or we see on the news when a tsunami hits or the actual deepest reality of death itself. So the cross brings our security and our hope that we can be absolutely, absolutely certain. As Hebrews says, he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, thus attaining eternal redemption. And that is for everyone who knows him by name. Eternal yes over each and every one of us. Or as Athanasius puts it, he was made man that we might be made divine. That doesn't mean that we become God. Um, what it means is that through the cross and the bridging of this gap, we can be caught up in the life of God, that we know heavenly realities. 
will become sons and daughters, a royal priesthood. But the cross isn't just our security and our hope. It is our apologetic. It explains and ministers to the state of the world because we all know that it's not okay. And God knows it's not okay. That's why he came. And if we lose sight of the cross, we not only lose sight of our vindication and our salvation, we lose sight of our apologetic to a broken and hurting world. Because if we don't have the cross, what have we got to say to the world around us? What have we got to say to each other? What have we got to say to death, to ill health, to depression, to the stuff we see on the news, to broken relationships, to the kids that don't happen, to the marriage that doesn't seem forthcoming? What have we got to say to suffering if we haven't figured out the cross? The cross really has said it all. And when we feel like we're forsaken, and that will happen in life, we have to know that we are not. That we've got a God who knows what it is like to be forsaken and to suffer and for that to be a reality within his very self, and that he will never, ever, ever forsake us, that he has taken hold of our hand, and he has called us by name. But in a fallen world, the reality is that we fellowship in his sufferings as he fellowships in ours and doesn't leave us. We live in that tension of the two trees between the tree of the cross and the tree of the new creation, but he's got hold of us in the in-between, and he won't fail us, and he doesn't let go, and he gets it. He gets it. And he also gets the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God, because he ordained it. He put the cross right at the center of it, and he knows even when the pain is so, so deep, there is strength in the sorrow. There is strength in the sorrow. That is what Paul is getting at when he writes. All over his writings, 1 Corinthians 12, he tells of his sorrows, of his difficulties. But there is strength within the sorrow. For when he is broken, he is strong. Christianity is scars, not superstars. All under the joy and the goodness of God. And as I was thinking um, about this all, I was just reflecting um, on um, probably the year before I came to join you guys. And it was the worst year of my life. Um, I completely burnt out. Um, I got some sort of virus of the nervous system, which was the most painful thing. Um, and then I just didn't get better properly for months and months and months. And the doctor was like, you're fine, you're fine. And they were like, you've got this post-viral fatigue thing. And, and it went on and on and on. And I remember just sitting there before the Lord and being like, God, are you serious? I'm meant to be getting ordained. What the heck is going on? And all I wanted was for God to just click his fingers, heal me, and pull me out of it. And it didn't happen like that. I had to go the way of the cross. And it was painful, so painful. 
but there was strength within the sorrow because he had hold of me the whole time. And that is the truth when we feel forsaken and confused. He has not let us go and he will never let us go. So, how do we, how do we respond to all of this? Well, we've got to become un-British and let the head knowledge move to the heart. So as I prayed, I just think there's four areas for us. And then we're going to worship and respond. Actually, there may be some of us here tonight, and we're not really sure where we stand with this Jesus. But we've been hearing this stuff, and we want in. So if that's you, um, I'd love to pray with you. Some of us might never have really processed this that we worship a crucified God. And so the call tonight is to process it. And it might be that life's just been really straightforward for you. So you haven't perhaps fallen on the cross. Uh, and that's okay, but we need to process it. Or it might be that life hasn't been remotely straightforward, but you've kind of feared to let God into that. And actually he's saying this evening, I'm right here. I want to take you by hand. I want to carry you. I want to love you through this. And some of us might feel forsaken in one area or another. And that's okay. We don't have to pretend things are okay when they're not okay. But when we look at the cross, it's God's way of saying, actually, that, that situation is wrong. And the world is broken. And I have come to fix it. And I am fixing it. And I will fix it. I'm in the pain and the suffering and the difficulty. And so our response to that might just be that we need to pray with someone and just ask the Holy Spirit to reveal more of the cross in that situation just so we've got something tangible to hang on to when the going is really tough. Finally, I just wondered if there are some of us who need to know that actually our identity is not found in something that has happened to us or been done to us. Actually, it's found in Christ's pricelessness that he speaks over you, his eternal yes over you. That he wants to say to you, you're in me. You're my son, you're my daughter, and I love you. Okay. So I think what we're going to do is just take a moment to let all of this settle, to contemplate the cross afresh. And all of our stories will be different. And God knows that and he loves you. But all of us are called into to a response in some way. So shall we stand and shall we pray? Let's invite the Holy Spirit who is here, but we'll invite him to, 